0: This is an Equity Bates Media podcast.
1: Equity Minds!
0: I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned
1: at 20 is new. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, where we help you understand markets so your nine-to-five job can go carket. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? It's good, Bryce. How are you? Good. You would have noticed that- <laughs> I did notice. We had a new intro there. So yeah. That one came in from Susie. She hit us up. And recommended uh, We help you understand markets So your 9 to 5 job can go carket. I don't mind it
0: I don't mind it I like the sentiment And credit to you You integrated it into the episode A little bit uh, smoother than last time Yeah,
1: it was a bit more seamless So look, really loving the fact That um, our listeners are sending in recommendations for this it is making my job easy and it's also quite entertaining
0: (laughs) this is your one job on the
1: podcast i know i'm outsourcing as much as possible
0: (laughs) bryce is actually going to outsource his hosting duties next week (laughs) listeners hit us up if you want to be
1: my co-host true true that's actually not bad (laughs) so ren today we're going to do a basics 101 and we're going to be talking about central banks and interest rates. Something yes. that uh, we've, you know, we've we've spoken about, uh, I guess, a number of times over the last couple of years. But we thought that it is an opportune time to actually sit down and talk about it in a bit of detail because there's a lot going on in this space, both domestically and uh, right across the globe. And uh, we're in a, a really interesting time. So yeah, we thought we'd spend about thirty minutes or so talking all things central banks and interest rates. Yeah, looking forward to it. So, Ren, before we kick off, we, I have a bit of a, a correction to make from our lithium episode. You will recall that I asked you a true or false question, which you answered correctly somewhat based on what I asked you at the time, and that was true or false, lithium is the lightest and densest uh, elemental metal. and you answered correct. Now, I need to correct that question.
0: So, so to clarify, <laughs> <You were wrong. laughs> I was wrong, yes. but you were also wrong in saying that I was yes, right. Yes.
1: So, need to correct that lithium is the lightest pure elemental metal, but it is the least dense metal as well. It didn't really make sense to have the densest and lightest. So uh, just- and cor-
0: given that everyone listens to us for our geological knowledge, we've probably turned a lot of listeners off by that.
1: Yes. So <laughs> luckily we're not a mining podcast. Uh, for anyone that is interested though, osmium and iridium are the densest metals in the world. So anyway, I hope that I don't have to correct that next week.
0: There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, uh, do, was, that, was that something a listener reached out yeah, and yeah. corrected so us on? Yeah, yeah. So
1: thank you to one of our listeners who hit us up on Twitter for that fact check. We're very open to fact checks. As, as we, we know, we're all on, on this journey together and don't always get everything right. But uh, luckily, I got one of the two right there, lightest metal, elemental metal in the world. So, let's move on from that, Ren. We're not here to talk about metals. If you want to listen to a mining podcast, we are not the one. So, let's chat central banks, Ren. So, why why are we talking about central banks and interest rates?
0: Yeah. So, there's been a lot of activity in this space recently and I'm sure if you've been watching the news in Australia, you will have heard that the Reserve Bank of Australia has recently cut interest rates twice. They're down at 1% and the futures markets look like they're expecting more interest rate cuts to come. So it's quite topical in Australia and we'll talk about what that all means in a second. But if you look globally, interest rates and central bank activity is really a topic of conversation at the moment. The Federal Reserve in the US had just have cut their interest rates for the first time since 2008, so since the midst of the global financial crisis. Their interest rates are at 2.25% now, and the European Central Bank, the president of the bank, Mario Draghi, has told politicians to prepare for interest rates cuts and quantitative easing, and we'll talk about what quantitative easing is in a little bit, but it's important to realize that pretty sure the European Central Bank's interest rates are in the negative already. And so, if they're talking about cutting them further, that's a worrying sign. So, it's very topical at the moment because interest rates are very low and that means something. It means a lot. And what we're going to do in this episode is break down what it means, why it's important and how you should think about it in terms of your investing portfolio.
1: Yeah, I think the Euro interest rate, European interest rate is is flat, I think so it might be going into negative if they're going to cut.
0: No, I think it's uh, negative 0.4%.
1: Oh, right. Okay. So, yeah, Ren, I think let's take a step back, I guess, and and quickly address what are central banks though and and what are otherwise sometimes known as, as the reserve banks because they're a pretty crucial part of, of an economy and understanding their role in the economy is, is very important to the point of one of our listeners the other day wanting to understand the basics of economics, this is a very central part to that. So, you know, central bank, otherwise known as a reserve bank, are important because they provide financial and, and banking services for the government, but they also implement the government's monetary policy, which is, which is very important to. Uh, economic growth and a few other goals that we'll go into later. So, they manage things like the currency, um, money supply, and also interest rates for the for the country. And then they also oversee the commercial banking system as well. So, pretty important role and one that uh, has a, a very significant impact on uh, how our economy performs. Did you have anything to add to that, Ren?
0: So, I think to to break it down very simply, they they print the money essentially. Yeah. They then set the rate at which banks can borrow money, and they're really the two main the two main things they do. They also do some other things in terms of shoring up the banking system and stuff like that. But I don't know if, as a one hundred and one, I think they're, they're probably the main two things.
1: Yep, I think that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. So. You've probably heard about the RBA, Reserve Bank of Australia. So they're our central bank here in in Australia, the Reserve Bank. Then, as you mentioned, Ren, the Fed over in the USA, uh, and then Bank of England is the one in England as well. So I think Bank of Japan is what it's called over in Japan. Correct me if I'm wrong.
0: It is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So they're they're the ones that you probably hear about most. And if you do, then, yeah, it's in, in context to discussion around the central bank. So, we mentioned their goals, Ren. You know, they sort of set out across the globe. They all generally have the same sort of goal uh, or goals. Do we want to ch- go into that? Let's do it. So, from my end, Ren, I think the three there's three main goals that a central bank tries to achieve and that centers around uh, employment, trying to maintain a, a reasonable level of uh, employment, also, price stability. So they have a, an inflation target that they try to maintain, and also, generally speaking, they try to stimulate economic growth. So, generally, those are the three main goals from from my point of view that a that a central bank tries to carry out and work towards. Is there anything else from your end?
0: No, I think they're the main ones. And when you think about the, how it's it sort of fits into the broader economics picture the Central Bank, so in Australia, the Reserve Bank of Australia tries to achieve those three goals with monetary policy. And then the government is also trying to achieve those three goals, you know, amongst other things with their fiscal policy, you know, like what they do with their budget and stuff like that. And in theory, between the two organisations, the government and the Reserve Bank, they should work in concert to achieve those goals. There's a open question about how well they work together but they sort of come at it from different angles and they do different things but really they should be trying to get inflation within 2 and 3% a year they should be driving unemployment down and they should see strong economic growth and then in theory that that's how the economy is managed and regulated i guess
1: mm. why is it important to have inflation i mean some people question do we want prices going up? Why do we want a band of between two and three percent of price increases? Why do, why don't we try and keep prices stable? You know, is is inflation a good thing?
0: Inflation is a good thing because it's an outcome. It's a side effect of economic growth. I think as as an economy is growing, and especially if wages are growing, inflation is generally a natural byproduct of that. So it's generally a symptom of an economy that's functioning well and growing. However, if you get too much inflation in the system, then that becomes a problem because the the value of the currency that your current country has starts to erode and then you can get into some real issues yeah, in that respect. So you want inflation because it's a symptom of a growing economy, but you don't want too much inflation because your currency starts to get devalued and then... If you have hyperinflation, then you get into you know, Zimbabwe era, or Zimbabwe issues now or Germany mm. in the 1930 issues. Um, mm. But yeah, a bit of inflation in the system is good.
1: So, we'll get a bit later in, in this episode, a few examples of some crazy inflation figures. But before we do, Ren, I think now's a good opportunity to, to move into the levers that a, a reserve bank can pull to try and achieve these goals. So- We discussed quantitative easing and market operations or impacting the money supply. But I think more importantly, it's uh, time to jump into interest rates because, as you said right at the start, um, there's a lot going on in that space. So, would you agree, firstly, that those sort of are the three main ways that a reserve bank can impact on or work towards their goals, that being money supply QE and, and interest rates? Yes, I would. Nice, <laughs> we're on the same page. <laughs> well, then the question is, did you want to discuss QE first or leave that to last and dig into interest rates?
0: So, so let, let's leave that to last, but, yeah. but maybe as a more general point, all, all three of those things essentially do the same thing at the end of the day, but the practical effect of printing more money or stop printing money, which was the first one, QE, which is about going in and buying financial assets, and then the third one, which is setting interest rates, setting the rate at which banks can borrow money. The intention of all three of those things is really the same, which is to regulate the amount of money in the system, the amount of liquidity in the system. And it's just really three different mechanisms to do that. The, fir- the first and the, the biggest one that everyone talks about and has really been the traditional lever for, in, uh, for central banks is interest rates. So, at a high level, the central bank sets the rate at which banks borrow money from the central bank. If interest rates are lower, it makes banks more able to borrow more money. And in theory, they should then pass this on to their customers. And that means that for customers that are borrowing money, they get a lower rate of interest from the bank that they're borrowing from, which makes them more likely to borrow more money. And on the flip side... It makes people who are saving money with the bank, it lowers the rate of interest that they get, and so it reduces their incentive to save more money in the bank. And so in theory, because it's more attractive to borrow and less attractive to save, people spend more money in the economy. So the central bank lowering interest rates and then banks passing that on to their customers in theory is meant to stimulate more more money being spent in the economy, stimulate demand, and stimulate economic growth. On the flip side, if interest rates go up, it makes it more expensive for banks to borrow money from the central bank, which banks then pass on to their customers. So the bank makes it more expensive for their customers to borrow money in the form of loans and mortgages and stuff like that. And they make it more attractive for customers to save money because the interest rates they get on deposits go up. And in theory, that restricts the amount of money in the system because people are saving rather than spending. So in theory, interest rates as a lever are meant to then change customers' behaviors, how much we spend, how much we save. And on a whole economy-wide level, it then is meant to change the level of growth, I guess, that comes out of that.
1: So in theory, it makes sense, Ren, but in reality, do the domestic banks, do they have to pass on uh, the interest rate cut that the Reserve Bank sets or is it up to them to actually uh, make that change themselves?
0: Yeah, well, that's that's the big point of controversy recently that they, they aren't obligated to pass interest rate cuts or interest rate rises on. And what that means is that we ha- have seen some of the banks not pass the full interest rate cut on recently, which then obviously dulls the effect that the central bank was intending to have by cutting or increasing rates in the first place. Do you want to add anything on the theory of interest rates?
1: No, I think uh, you think you nailed that. Very clear. So yeah, no, I'm all good.
0: So I think to then put that in an investing context, and then maybe we spend a bit of time talking about what's actually happening in practice. But if we yeah. if we stick to the theory for now, so interest rates are set. That changes the, in theory, banks then pass that on to their customers and that changes the rate at which we can borrow and the rate at which we earn if we save with those banks. How that affects us as investors, we have to all remember that investing is a relative exercise. You're just trying to get the highest yield possible for your investment. It doesn't, if there's a better return out there for less risk, that's a better investment. And so that means that you're always looking at what the risk-free rate of return is, the the rate of return you can get on your money where you take absolutely no risk. And that rate is in the large part driven by interest rates. So the two main ones are some, some people will say, well, the absolute risk-free rate of return is what I can get from the bank. So I base all my investments on you know, whatever I can get in the bank, if the bank's giving me 10% interest and the market's only returning 8% a year, then I'm not going to be interested in the market. But if the bank is giving me 1% a year and the market's giving me 8% a year, then the market is a lot more attractive. And so interest rates changing changes the relative value of the different investments, and that will then direct people to invest in different asset classes. The other way is Interest rates then affect bond rates, so the rate at which governments and companies issue debt. and if bond prices or bond yields are more attractive, then that will direct money into those uh, into that as an asset class or you know vice versa. So as interest rates go down, bonds become less attractive because the amount of interest they're paying is less and bank savings rates become less attractive because the amount of interest they're paying is less. And what that means is that things like the stock market become more attractive because on a relative basis, the risk reward is there for the stock market compared to the lower interest rates on some of these other assets.
1: So, Ren, if I'm a value investor and I'm using a discounted cash flow or something of the equivalent that uses a a risk uh, or a, a discount rate with a dropping interest rate does that change the valuation of the company or does it change what i'm prepared to pay for the company
0: so in theory yes it just it depends what you use as your discount rate so if you're saying us treasuries like us government bonds are your risk free rate then as interest rates fall and the the rate that you get from those bonds falls as well, then you're discounting it by a lower percentage and then the value that you're getting increases. So if you're using it, something like that as your discount rate, then yeah, it would change the valuation. If you're using something like the long-term average return of the stock market as your discount rate, then it won't be affected by interest rates.
1: Yeah, nice. Equity, mate. So, how, how's it all playing out at the moment, Ren? We know that that's the theoretical side of things, but in reality, if you look across the globe, as you said right at the start, there's a lot of countries, big economies around the globe that are in the low tens, uh, sorry, in the low single digit interest rates if not approaching 0 there's some instances where countries are in negative interest rates, which we can explain what happens in that instance. But h- how are you seeing it all sort of play out at the moment? And I guess the big question that we've been discussing is, are interest rates now as effective uh, at encouraging economic growth and maintaining price stability and, and uh High employment, as they used to be, or are we now seeing, you know, a, a drop of 0.25 percent being more ineffective than it is effective?
0: Well, I think you may have <laughs> question. you may have alluded to, <laughs> to the answer, or your answer to this question. Well,
1: I just like to hear your thoughts on it.
0: <laughs> so, I think maybe before we get too deep into the weeds, if we just if people are sort of overwhelmed by the first. 15, 20 minutes of the discussion. All all you have to know at this point is that interest rates are set by central banks and historically and in theory, they have been able to change the amount of money in the economy and they've been really good at regulating or they've been relatively effective at regulating things like inflation and economic growth and central banks have been Really important policymakers for the economy, just really through setting interest rates more than anything else. So that that's that's really what you have to know because what we've seen in the last ten years as you alluded to, Bryce is (laughs) sorry, jump the (laughs) gun. No, no, it's it's (laughs) it's where this was going is uh, they have been far less effective, and interest rates in particular have been far less effective at stimulating demand. And really we saw it in the GFC that interest rates were cut massively across the globe and they didn't really have the effect that policymakers were hoping to see. And I guess you can kind of understand that because it wasn't just like there was fear of a recession and people were not spending as much and interest rates could maybe stimulate that, but it was actually like there, people were worried that there was going to be a systemic failure you know they were worried that all these major banks would collapse and the whole you know foundation of the financial system would collapse and in that context interest rates changing a quarter of a percent here a quarter of a percent there probably don't change that that level of fear so what we saw in the post JFC world was a next the next step I guess in central bank operations and we saw quantitative easing which we'll explain and we saw negative interest rates which we'll actually explain which we'll explain as well and i guess what we've seen in the 10 11 years since then is that the normal operations of central banks have not been effective at regulating the economy and stimulating demand and there's been a lot of reluctance from central bankers to raise interest rates below the sort of historically low levels that they're at, which is a concern. So, to take it back, QE, quantitative easing, do you want to explain it?
1: Well, very broadly, I think quantitative easing um, began in in its – well, I don't know. Was it the, the the very first time that it began was the end of the financial crisis? I'm not quite sure about the, the historical side or –
0: no, it, it happened before in, in okay. some countries, like Bank of Japan, were doing it from like two thousand, right? But it really became a big thing after the JFC, yeah,
1: yeah. So, so essentially, it's a, another means of uh, the the government or the, the central bank, sorry, stimulating the economy, and and what they do is just buy buy up uh, assets, larger large amounts of assets. So, um. In the instance of, of America, the Reserve Bank was buying huge, huge volumes of of bonds. Four
0: point five trillion dollars worth of bonds in the end. Wow.
1: I mean, <laughs> so essentially what they're doing is putting that money back in into the system. As a way of stimulating demand and and I mean it worked from the point of view that it certainly drove up asset prices you know one of the biggest contributors to this bull run over the last ten years has a been very low interest rates so people have been able to borrow and, and put money into assets and b this demand for for assets coming from four point five trillion dollars worth of buying power from from the fed
0: and just when you think about that that so that's four point five trillion dollars worth of you know, US bonds and stuff like that, a lot of government bonds that investors now couldn't invest in, like it was offsetting demand from private investors. And so those investors that would otherwise have bought some of these $4.5 trillion worth of assets are then pushed into, you know, pushed up the risk curve to get mm. the same rate of return that they might've been after. Mm. And so it just, um, yeah, like it puts a $4.5 trillion floor in terms of artificially created demand, I guess. So, yeah, like you wonder why people are buying risky bonds and, you know, the market's on a run. Well, they're they're competing with the organization that literally prints US dollars.
1: and it's a good point you make there, Ren. I like the word artificial because, you know, what goes up must come down and if the Reserve Bank has bought all of these bonds and, and assets... Then at some point you would imagine they're going to want to sell them, and and well, it. it's it's fun. It's funny you say that
0: because they actually did try and sell them, but, so but it didn't
1: work out, did it?
0: At, at their peak, no.
1: <laughs> so they stopped. Well, it,
0: it's slow. <laughs> it's slowly working out, but that's part of the risk. So yeah, it, it peaked at four point five trillion a couple of years ago, and they started trying to sell it off. And I think at this point they're at about. Three point eight trillion. Gee, so still
1: so I much mean, to go. They've sold. I know. Oh.
0: <laughs> and and the thing is that you know the Fed have cut rates to uh, recently, and there's talk that if the rate cuts aren't effective, that will they have to look at QE again? And so going from a policy setting of trying to sell all these assets off and try and. Not hold trillions of dollars worth of financial assets on the Fed's balance sheet. The policy setting might have to change. To we need to buy more junk to to in, to you know invest in the system and put money back mm-hmm. into the system. But like, this is the question: like, what number is too big? Because I would have said four point five trillion is too big. You you know, if you'd asked me in two thousand and seven, and I think most people would probably have been on that same page. But I mean. They, they've, they hold it and the system doesn't collapse and they can print money as much as they want. And the big concern, the, the thing that people always freak out about with QE yeah. is inflation. Because if you're, if you're printing all this money and you're buying all these assets and you're, you're increasing the value of these assets and increasing money in the economy, that, that should have a real inflationary effect. But if you're having inflation without economic growth, then you see stagflation, which is a real concern. And yet the Fed's put $4.5 trillion of money into these assets, and we just haven't really mm. seen any inflation. So there's an open question about what number is too big? You know, Is it $10 trillion worth of assets when we start to see a concerning inflation trend? Is it $20 trillion? Is there a number? And- I don't know if anyone can answer that. We're sort of in uncharted territory at this point.
1: On that inflation point, Ren, it's probably a good opportunity to do a bit of a round-the-world tour of where interest rates are at. And recently the US uh, Fed Reserve came out and cut interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point, bringing, the, bringing it down to 2.25%. They'd actually been raising interest rates up until that point, which from from the point of view of understanding the fact that a reserve bank needs, you know, at least 300 basis points or about 3% to play with to effectively fight a recession. Historically speaking, the USA needed or wanted to bring their their rates up closer to the 3% mark and their economy has been performing relatively well. But it's interesting that, uh, as you said, inflation, they're not really seeing it over there. And so they've dropped it by 0.25% uh, down to, as I said, 225 to to see what happens. And we also know that uh, in June and July of this year, the Reserve Bank of Australia has also dropped interest rates, which is the first time they've done so since 2016. For about, what, four years now, four or five years, we've been sitting at 1.5%. Then in June this year, they dropped to one25 and now we're sitting at 1%. So, the Reserve Bank here in Australia are also concerned about our inflation or lack thereof, and also sort of sluggish economic growth and Underemployment occurring in our economy at the moment,
0: maybe a little bit of concern for the housing market as well.
1: Because, mm, mm, absolutely, you,
0: as you cut rates, in theory, banks pass that on in the form of cheaper mortgages.
1: So let's quickly discuss negative interest rates, and then we'll wrap it up with a couple of fun facts. Uh, unless you have anything, <laughs> made, unless you have anything major, you want to add um, uh, to the, nah, to the meat of that? Uh, no,
0: nah, I think so. That that's really. That quantitative easing is this sort of new thing in the in the scale in which we're doing it, and you know Australian the um, Philip Lowe, the head of the Reserve Bank, has spoken about QE as a policy option, so it probably wouldn't be a surprise if they keep cutting rates and it doesn't work that Australia does something similar, hopefully not four point5 trillion dollars worth, but you know it might be something we hear on the news. In the coming days mm. or weeks, very or interesting time. But anyway, yeah, I could keep talking, <laughs> so cut me off. Let's uh, let's move on to negative rates.
1: All right, negative rates. Well, you wouldn't think, you know, it seems a bit unusual to have a negative interest rate, but as we know, there are a couple of countries in the world that have negative interest rates. None more so, I guess, uh, known than well known than Japan. So they're sitting at negative one. 0, sorry, negative 0.1 of a percent. So what does this actually mean, Ren, for, for the economy and, and what are they, what are they trying to achieve with a negative interest rate?
0: So I think what you said at the start there is really important to stress. This is so counterintuitive. In, in theory, someone loans money and then interest is paid to the person who loans money as compensation for the risk they wear. you know, the risk that you might default, the person who gets the loan might default. But with negative rates, it flips it around. The lender continues to wear the risk of default, but they also are having their principal reduced because there's a negative rate of interest. So it's counterintuitive and it is strange, but it's what we saw in a post-JFC world. Sweden went to negative rates. The European Central Bank did the same. Japan did the same. And as a result, there's now $9.5 trillion worth of government debt that carries a negative yield it's a strange situation but it essentially means that if we put it in you know terms of you and i i lend you a hundred dollars at a negative interest rate and let's say it's negative five percent um annually that means you only have to pay me back 95 dollars at the end of the year which for a bank just it doesn't make sense no but and, and the theory is like if you're a saver and there's negative interest rate, if you're putting money in the bank, that you're losing money. Losing, there's no yeah. reason to save. And if you a potential you're a potential borrower, then you actually have to pay back less than you borrow. Mm-hmm. You know, Bryce, mm-hmm. if you borrowed that $100 to start your business, you only have to pay me back $95. So why wouldn't you give it a crack and start your business and, you know, there's just it's meant to incentivize economic activity and, I mean, it doesn't seem like we've really seen it.
1: No, yeah. I mean, it's probably a whole episode doing case study of a couple of countries that have been in negative interest rates for a while and the impact that it has had um, because, as you said- in
0: theory- Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but in theory, because Europe still has negative interest rates and Mm. Deutsche Bank, the big German bank, is just in a world of hurt and in theory- Negative interest rates being negative for so long has been a large part of
1: that. Mm, mm. Well, two questions for you then, Ren. Two fun facts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what country has the lowest interest rate in the world and what do you reckon it is?
0: Well, I, I would have said Europe as the, as the European Central Bank at negative 0.4%, but, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know any lower than that.
1: So, Switzerland is negative 0.75%. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Really battling with low inflation. So, the central bank over there has thrown down negative interest rates. And so, they're sitting at at, uh, the bottom.
0: That's really interesting just on Switzerland because they had the the largest quantitative easing program of any country as well, not in terms of total amount, but at one stage, the Swiss central bank owned assets equivalent to Switzerland's GDP. Interesting. So, uh, that. Uh, yeah, there you go. Switzerland, not, not doing well at the moment, I guess.
1: No. Well, then on the other side, the flip side, Ren, there's one country in the world that obviously has the highest interest rates. So, what do you reckon it is and what do you think the interest rate is? And if you've already <laughs> looked this up, then by all means, have a crack.
0: I am not sure, but I'm going to guess it's a country with uh, crazy inflation. So I'm going to say, uh, I'm either going to say Zimbabwe or Venezuela, and I'll have a crack at
1: Venezuela. So those countries are right up there, in the, and for that reason of inflation. However, Argentina has the highest interest rates in the world in a bid to prop up the country's floundering currency. At (laughs) (laughs) 68.2%. So, huge. So, if you're a saver in Argentina, I mean, you'd probably be doing pretty well just sitting some some cash in the bank and that goes to your point, Ren, of your risk-free rate.
0: I guess we should explain because why aren't we changing all of our money to Argentine pesos? Is that the currency there?
1: I think it's peso, yeah.
0: And then just putting it in an Argentine bank and earning 68%, that's... That's better than you're going to get on the stock market. That's better than you're going to get in any investment. But the the point is if you're earning 68% interest but the currency's being devalued through inflation at, uh, at a higher rate, then your actual real rate of return um, in, adjusted for inflation is not 68%. Mm. It's a lot lower. Mm. So that's why we're not getting on a plane with... A suitcase full of money and, uh, and trying to deposit it in over there. So yeah, there we go. Two two fun facts. I got one question for you. Okay. So Bank of Japan has done the biggest quantitative easing program ever mm-hmm. in terms of time. It started in two thousand and it's still going today. They've moved from bonds and government bonds, which is mainly what the Europeans and the Americans are buying into the actual stock market itself. Crazy. As a percentage of Japan Japan's ETF market, how much do you think the Bank of Japan owns?
1: Of the ETF market?
0: Of the ETF market.
1: Well, as a total percentage of the ETF market, knowing that they're probably throwing cash at this, I'm going to go – I'm going to be – less conservative and say 60% of the ETF market is owned by the Bank of Japan.
0: That would be high, but it's not high enough what? because it's 77.5% of Japan's ETF market is owned by the Bank of
1: Whoa. Japan. Whoa, that's ridiculous.
0: Yeah, and just think of it.
1: Yeah. So they're driving like, up the demand for all of this at the moment and it just makes you think like h- how long do they envisage holding that for and what's what's going to happen and as you said, the, the flow and yeah. effects that that has to the retail investors and in your your institutions as well, having to find alternative, um, or as you said, move up the risk scale to find, a, I guess, better returns. It's it's fascinating.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. Wow. So there you go. I, I have a finishing thought. Do you, do you have anything else? Because otherwise i think we
1: certainly started basics 101 got got a (laughs) a bit in the weeds there with some of the qe stuff but look i I really hope that we've managed to break that down in a way that uh, everyone can get something out of it because you know from the point of view as we said right at the start of understanding how all this works and ties into broader economy and the impact it has i think it's very important so yeah over to you ren wrap it
0: up so shameless plug for thought starters um a few weeks ago, Howard Marks released a memo. Howard Marks is um, a, a really big investor in the States and we featured it in Thought Starters. That's why it's a shameless plug. So if you haven't signed up, you should. But he asked the question in this memo, do central banks avoid recessions or do they just merely delay them? And is what we're seeing now that central banks will continue to fight recessions and continue to pull as many policy levers as they can until they just run out of run out of powder essentially. And is what we're seeing now central banks not, you know, not being able not having avoided the JFC recessions and stuff like that, but just really delayed them in the ten years since. And are they running out of policy options to continue to delay it and have they just, you know, built up uh, something that probably was inevitable? Mm, mm. Pretty somber thought <laughs> to end it on, but um, <laughs> I, I, as I was researching this and just looking at, you know, prolonged negative rates and trillions of dollars of worth of QA, it, it, it it's tough not to think about that yeah. demo and to think about the question he asks What's in it. And, mm. Like, who knows? May, maybe. I definitely don't know, but, um, yeah, it's a a scary Mm, thought.
1: So if you are interested in reading that memo, uh, head to our thought starters archives, equitymates.com forward slash thought starters. Uh, there'll be a link in there to our thought starters from last week. And if you have no idea what we're talking about thought starters is a weekly email that, that we send out with five interesting articles that have uh, grabbed our attention at some point in the last couple of weeks. And uh, Ren does a fantastic job at, at collating them and by, uh, You should head over to our website to sign up. Equally, if you haven't already, join our Facebook group, our discussion forum. There's a lot going on in there, Um, some great conversations. So hit us up there and if you have any questions, we also have the Ask Us Anything forum on our website and we'll also answer any questions on email, Facebook or Instagram. So nice, Ren. Really enjoyed that conversation. I think a very important topic and one that is certainly a watch this space. Because, you know, we're in uncharted territory at the moment by from in some instances. So, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah,
0: definitely. And we'll be here to chat about it in a semi-nonsense way on this podcast.
1: <laughs> Love it. All right, Ren, we'll, uh, we'll chat stocks next week. Equity mates and the people appearing in this
0: program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation.
1: Equity minds. I will say this about investing: everything you do learn is
0: cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity.